Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. I'm going to be breaking down week four of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. I have streamed this entire week of trial. So when I talk about watching this minute by minute, oh, not only did I watch it, but I live streamed it on YouTube with quite a lot of you. So to all of you that are new to the podcast and new to the YouTube channel, thank you so much for your support. I'm so glad that even though this trial has been wild and sad and just all the things, um, that it's brought us together in this weird world of legal commentary on the internet where you get real lawyers doing real legal analysis in real time of other lawyers. It is a very meta type of a thing, and I've enjoyed it, um, and I know you've enjoyed it. It's been nice to see so many of you um, on the streams and so many of you finding the channel. We just celebrated over 300,000 subscribers on YouTube and there is no slowing down. If you're just listening on the podcast and you haven't dropped by a live stream on YouTube yet, it is a whole lot of fun to feel like you are in an AOL chat room with everyone you want to talk to about this trial. So if you feel like you haven't had anyone to talk to about this trial, please come join me and chat with me about it on our live streams when this trial resumes on May 16th for week five of this trial. Amber Heard is still on the stand. And so today's podcast starts with a quote from her. I am here because my ex-husband is suing me over an op-ed I wrote. And with that, away we go into a summary of everything that happened during week four. Buckle up. It was a busy week. Hey there. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. A huge thank you to today's sponsor, Backbone. The one thing I love is casual gaming, and with coverage of this trial, I have needed some time to chill out, and Backbone has been a perfect companion that turns my iPhone into a portable mobile console gaming experience. I can play Xbox games. I can play PlayStation games. I can play Apple arcade games all with this console. It's been a ton of fun. And what I really love is that I can play Grand Theft Auto without my kids being able to play Grand Theft Auto because I love that game, but I also don't need them playing Grand Theft Auto yet. Did you know I love GTA? I've loved GTA since I was in law school. This has been so much fun. If you already have a console, you can play the games you already own with Remote Play or the Streamlink app. And this has not only an audio jack, so you can plug headphones in, but you can also charge it while you're playing. And with Backbone, you can even record your gameplay or stream it on apps like Twitch. How cool is that? If you want to try it out for yourself, go to playbackbone.com slash now to order your Backbone until June 30th and get free access to over three. 150 console games and perks. Did I mention Grand Theft Auto? Including one month free Xbox Games Pass Ultimate, one month free of Apple Arcade, two months free of Google Strata Pro, and three months free of Discord Nitro. Find your next adventure at playbackbone.com slash lawnard. And if you're inclined, tell me what games you are playing on your backbone. We should get back into this case. Well, this week, of trial has been quite a lot, and it ended with Amber Heard still on the stand, still doing direct testimony, and the week finished with her testimony of essentially what went down or from her perspective in Australia. There's been quite a lot of conflicting testimony as she's testified, but we will get into that because a lot happened before she testified, but her testimony has absolutely been headline grabbing. And because of that, it's really easy to forget what happened earlier on in the week. But oh my my, there were a lot of witnesses earlier in the week. So Monday, May 2nd, we started off with Travis McGivern, a security guard, getting into Jack Wiggum, then Richard Marks, Douglas uh, Banya, and ending with nurse Aaron Filotti. And we're going to go through each of their testimony real quick. Travis McGivern, the security guard, had a very long ZZ Top style beard that occasionally he was styling. He was, um, he was 
probably for me, the most entertaining witness of the day. I enjoyed his testimony. And we ended the day with nurse Aaron Filati testifying by video deposition. And those are always kind of dry, but we got some other interesting testimony that day. But Travis McGivern testified about what is being called in this case, the staircase incident. It's an incident where it's very clear that Amber Heard punched Johnny Depp in the face. Why she punched Johnny Depp in the face is up for debate because there are two very different perspectives on that. Amber Heard has now testified that she thought that Johnny Depp was going to push her sister down the stairs. And she seemed to testify that she thought Johnny Depp was swinging for her sister, like going to punch her sister. And we've got Johnny Depp's testimony that that's not what happened, that Amber Heard had been throwing things at him. They got into an argument and then security got between them. And then um, she punched him in the face. And then we now have Travis McGivern, the security guard who got in between them saying, I was in between them. No one else came in between them. Whitney, her sister, was not in between them. It was just Amber Heard, me, and Johnny Depp. And Johnny, he said, rearranged her wardrobe, like threw a rack of clothes down the stairs and uh, messed up her clothes and like threw things all around and kind of tossed. It sounded like tossed her possessions uh, quite thoroughly after this fight, but that she had been throwing Red Bull. It's always Red Bull in this trial, but she had been throwing a had thrown and hit him with a Red Bull can. And after she punched him in the face that Johnny Depp was very upset with security guard McGivern saying, this is your fault. And then the security guards like, I had to get Johnny Depp out of there. So during this incident in trial, we saw Amber Heard's testimony saying that she immediately thought that, you know, her sister's on the precipice of the stairs. But I also took issue with the fact that she said her back was to the stairs and then said her front and then kind of switched it back to her back. And it was kind of confusing the ordering of where everyone was. She said that she immediately thought of Kate Moss and the stairs and what's making the rounds on social media that the jury might not have perceived or noticed or even care about is we saw lead counsel for Johnny Depp, Ben Chu, turn around to the counsel that is doing the cross-examination for Amber Heard, Miss um, Vasquez, and he kind of went, yes, with a little like fist bump, like, yeah. So we are all suspecting that he oh, something has, the op- the door has been opened to something. Whatever is now able to come in, it seemed to me, it seems like something is probably precluded due to pretrial motions unless the door is opened, meaning the party brings it up in a way that it can then be inquired about. I don't know exactly what will be introduced now that Kate Moss has come out of Amber Heard's mouth, but we definitely, that moment has made the rounds on social media. So no doubt you've probably seen something about it, but we don't know yet if that'll come up on cross-examination or when Johnny Depp's team gets to do their rebuttal witnesses to rebut things that were said. So will they confront her about Kate Moss and cross-examination? We will have to see when trial resumes on May 16th. During Travis McGivern's testimony, he said that there were times that he got into arguments. Well, that Amber Heard yelled at him. He didn't say they got into arguments. He said that Amber Heard yelled at him, demeaned his career choice, called him a, quote, fucking yes man, end quote. And he talked about, and this was probably my favorite. Maybe this is why he's one of my favorite witnesses. Emily, is this why he's one of your favorite witnesses? Maybe. He said, um, the F word is my favorite word and it was being thrown around a lot. And he talks about the verbal onslaught going on between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard right before this staircase incident and that she was barraging him with all kinds of names. But he also testified that During that verbal argument, Johnny Depp was giving as good as he got, which is language we've also heard echoed by Amber Heard in audio recordings and its statements that we've heard echoed by Amber Heard's team in their opening statements. So the languaging on that was really interesting to me because it was Johnny was giving as good as he got. And we've heard that particular phrase come up multiple times. And it's curious to me why. I wonder you know, when you spend a lot of time with people, you start to talk alike. I'm just wondering where that phrase came from, if it was um, his saying, if it was Amber Heard saying, but it has come up now multiple times. And we also saw that in that, um, in that staircase fight, Travis McGivern testified that Depp, he and Depp were trying to leave uh, the penthouse and Amber Heard was stopping them from leaving the penthouse during that fight. He also said that he was in between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard when she threw a punch across him and landed it on Johnny Depp. The next witness that was called to the standby Depp's team was Jack Wiggum. He had been an agent at CAA and then became a private 
uh, talent agent and works with Johnny Depp. He was part of the, the, well, part, he was the agent negotiating Pirates 6. They had a deal he testified to for Pirate 6 for $22.5 million. And this was, I'm not exactly sure the language he used, but something like an exploratory deal or like a lock-in deal where they kind of made sure that the studio and the actor were in the same ballpark on numbers before a deal gets inked. And he said that there were so many previous Pirates deals that this would be kind of an addendum to the previous contracts that existed. But when he was cross-examined and even some in his direct testimony, he talked about the fact that there had been some creative differences on Pirates with Disney, but that Jerry Bruckheimer very much was fighting for Johnny Depp to be in this film. And there was some back and forth about Johnny Depp saying in an interview that he wouldn't come back to Pirates because of these creative creative differences for, you know, $300 million and like a million alpacas or something hyperbolic like that. And when the agent was asked on cross-examination about that statement, he goes, no, it seemed hyperbolic. And that statement was asked about with others because Amber Heard's team is trying to show that Pirates was not a done deal and that Johnny Depp doesn't actually have damage from the defamation. Even though Depp's also going to argue defamation per se, which doesn't require proof of damages, you still have Amber Heard's team trying to argue, see, Pirates was not a done deal. Pirates was not lost because of the op-ed. There were other issues with Pirates. Um, And we've seen that a lot in cross-examination, whether Depp was unreliable, whether he was showing up to set on time, whether he was causing other issues, or whether these creative differences with the Pirates franchise were what caused him to not be in the movie, not the op-ed. And for them, it is a strong argument saying, look, he's not damaged by the op-ed. There were all these other factors that caused the damage. And this grouping of witnesses for the end of, you know, Depp's case in chief, this group of witnesses really was trying to go to damages, even though they're also going to argue that defamation per se, defamation per se being accusations of a crime and other types of defamation that's considered on its face defamatory because it's so damaging. And when we talk about defamation per se more later in this episode, we'll talk about the headline of the article, which is going to be, I think, the strongest argument that Depp's team has for defamation per se. So with that, his agent talked about his work in 2017, what happened in 2018, what happened to his work after the op-ed came out. Uh, it disappeared. People moved away. Projects got you know put on hold. And he testified that the op-ed was extremely impactful for Johnny. It was catastrophic because it was a first-person account. So this was going to the fact that the op-ed was different than Amber Heard's accusations about Depp in 2016, different than her filing for divorce and going to get a temporary restraining order, and different from the UK Sun headline that called Johnny Depp a wife beater. So Depp's team is trying to distinguish that 2016 point in time. The the UK Sun article months before the op-ed and then the op-ed and why the op-ed was, in their opinion, more damaging than all these other things that came before, including the 2016 allegations that Depp did not sue over clearly because they settled their divorce. And we heard testimony in week three that with that divorce settlement, there was an NDA and other things like that. The next expert was Richard Marks, no, not the singer, who was like the deal maker of Hollywood. I found this dude's resume fascinating. How much help he did um, to this case, I think, could be lost in, in how kind of dense his testimony was. He was really there to testify about Hollywood changing and the fact that Hollywood would put up with, as he said it multiple times on the stand, Hollywood will put up with diva and drugs, divas and drugs. But after Me Too, um, things really changed. And these accusations of impropriety, sexual impropriety, domestic violence, these accusations will not stand. And they became, you know, the things that Hollywood's backing away from very quickly and explained how Hollywood's changed and talked about the fact that he'd been making deals in Hollywood since the 70s. Stuff that I found fascinating as a total giant nerd. He was the one that retained merchandising rights for George Lucas over Star Wars because the studio didn't think that the merchandising rights in Star Wars would be valuable. I was yelling. I was like, wait, what? Fascinating. He talked about working with um, some of the largest production companies in Hollywood that you've heard of. He's also responsible for the George Foreman grill and like did all of the George Foreman agreements and licensing on the grill. I was like, wait, what? He kept talking and I'm like, wait, what? Responsible 
for so many deals. So it was really interesting to hear this lawyer who had also gone to UCLA, Go Bruins, who talked about his career since the 70s of making deals in Hollywood and how much he saw Hollywood change. He talked about the fact that this article came out during the height of Me Too, that it was calling out Hollywood. And he said, Hollywood heard her plea. Part of the languaging in this op-ed is that Hollywood protected a known and accused abuser and that she faced the wrath of it. So he talked about really how Hollywood responded to that article that was also calling them out. He said he didn't think the timing was a coincidence at all and that it was um, really strategic, that it was when her star is rising and as Aquaban was coming out. I found it to be really interesting testimony. I think that he was really there to give the overview of why Hollywood was backing away from Johnny Depp so quickly and called the op-ed catastrophic, again, leaning into the fact that the op-ed was a firsthand account. And he really did discount the UK Sun as basically some gossip magazine. And he's like, aren't they the one that have like topless women on page three or something? Like he really was like, these other articles, these other things aren't firsthand accounts. They aren't op-eds in the Washington Post. They didn't do the damage because they're easily discounted because of the publications that they're in and really gave context for why this op-ed was more damaging than other things that were previously said about Depp. That witness was followed by um, Douglas Banya Bania, who is a media and social media expert who talked about Google searches for Johnny Depp, Q scores for Johnny Depp, which are a no like, and trust score that some types of companies will use to rate kind of the value, if you will, of a personality or a brand and rate kind of its overall, like try to quantify overall perception. Like how much do you really like Coca-Cola? Are they likable? Those types of things. How much do you like this athlete? How, how valuable are they as a property, if you will, not as a human, but as a brand, if you will. He went through media coverage and deep into Google Analytics, looking at coverage before 2016, when the allegations came out in 2016 and the TRO, the Temporary Restraining Order for Domestic Violence, was granted, then 2018 and forward. The things I think he didn't do well were that he didn't distinguish well the damage from 2016 to 2018 and how it was different. I think that the jury might find some of his uh, testimony confusing. I found some of his testimony confusing as he's talking about the different likability scores and the different Google searches, but it gave us one of my favorite moments from this line of cross-examination because I'm just going to play you a clip of what happened. So for audio, this is, you will hear the witness first, and then you will hear the attorney asking questions. And they're talking about Google analytics and these searches for Johnny Depp because the testimony is to prove that Johnny Depp's reputation and the types of searches that came up about Johnny Depp after the op-ed were much more negative, were much more about drug and alcohol use, and those things all changed in 2018. But after 2016, we started to see a negative trend for Johnny Depp, but it got worse in 2018. And cross-examination was like, no, there's all these other things out there. There's all these other pinpoints. You can't really dial down what hurt Johnny Depp's reputation. Everything else is lower than that because everything is being compared to that highest point. Right. So you don't know how many people actually did the search for Johnny Depp in January 2004, correct? And this is Amber Heard's lawyer, not Rottenborn. I don't remember this lawyer's name. He's been called Baby Rottenborn by the, by the interwebs. But this is Amber Heard's lawyer questioning about Google Analytics showing searches for Johnny Depp and then whether the results are positive or negative on cross-examination. Correct. It could be 100 or it could be a million, right? I don't know. And you don't know if it's actually human beings doing these searches, correct? As opposed to... As opposed to <laughs> bots or something like that. I, I did not do an analysis to determine if it's a bot or a human being, but Google Trends is a tool that's going to show you during a time frame the highest point of search interest as 100. Okay. But you don't know if, it, you don't know if it's humans, bots, my cat doing the searches, correct? Objection asked and answered your own. Sustained. Next question. What you can't see if you're listening on the audio is lead counsel Ben Chu's face with a very large smirk as this attorney literally asked, and I will play it again, you don't know if it's humans, bots, 
or my cat. And while the objection was objection asked and answered, I think the objection should have been objection assumes facts, not in evidence that a cat can do a Google search. But I feel like the opportunity was missed, probably because these attorneys are taking this trial very seriously and aren't watching it and commenting about it on YouTube like I am. My cat doing the searches, correct? Objection asked and answered. <laughs> Sustained. Next question. My cat. My cat. My cat. That was probably one of my favorite moments from that cross-examination. And the delight on lead counsel's face is uh, is something to behold with Ben Chu saying, <laughs> you're asking if your cat is doing the Google searches. The jury didn't seem to laugh. The audience didn't seem to laugh, though TikTok and Instagram have had quite a lot of fun with that moment in court. Um, because again, look, sometimes when you're in trial, things just come out of your mouth and you're like, oh my, I didn't mean to say that. So that was towards the end of a very long Monday, May 2nd. The last witness was nurse Erin Filati, who was again, a video deposition. This was the nurse particularly assigned to Amber Heard. We had seen the doctor that she worked under, Dr. Kipper, and the other nurse much earlier in trial. I think that they chose to play this nurse's depot at the time they did, so it was closer in time to Amber Heard's testimony. We've already seen things in the nursing notes and things that this nurse testified to contradicted by Amber's Heard expert, um, Dr. Don Hughes, and contradicted by Amber Heard's own testimony. So I think they played this closer in time so that this nurse's testimony might be closer in the jury's mind when we see contradictions in the other testimony. Again, in a civil case like this, they have depositions, they have reports, they generally know what's going to be said so they can strategize where to put these witnesses. And I think putting Aaron Filati towards the end where you're going to get Amber Heard saying, no, I wasn't using cocaine. I abhor cocaine. And Aaron Filati's got nursing notes saying that Amber Heard was struggling with addiction with regard to narcotics and that she was struggling with cocaine, among other things, that she self-reported that she had bipolar disorder, that she reported to her nurse that she was dealing with anxiety and jealousy when her fiance at that time fiance Johnny Depp was away and these other things. Then we're seeing the expert a day later coming in and saying, no, she's never been diagnosed with a personality disorder other than by Dr. Curry. And no, she wasn't dealing with drug and substances. So you're seeing these contradictions from the nurse's notes who was contemporaneously dealing with Amber Heard and then Amber Heard's own expert and Amber Heard's own testimony contradicting that. So that was a very interesting testimony to round out the day. And that takes us into day 13 of trial, Tuesday, May 5th, sorry, Tuesday, May 3rd, as we're getting into the second part of nurse Erin Filati's video deposition. This nurse was also called to the penthouse um, in December of 2015 after the staircase incident and another incident. The The dates and times of these incidents have gotten very difficult to keep track of through Amber Heard's testimony. I am at the point where I just need to make my own timeline because things have been very squirrely with times. But it seems that this nurse was called to the penthouses after not just a incident where she was she punched Johnny Depp on the stairs, but then a fight continued. It seems that evening or the next day that Amber Heard in her testimony recounted with um, horrific detail that we'll talk about in her testimony. But Johnny Depp said that he left and then didn't come back to the penthouses after he was punched on the stairs. Amber Heard recounts a much larger fight, the bed being broken, clumps of hair all over the apartment, being dragged from room to room by her hair and having blood um, being headbutted and hurt on her nose and uh, busted lip. And the nurse came and the nursing note said she saw a little bit of blood on the lip there are photos from that that Amber Heard has since put in testimony that I've shared some of up on my uh, Twitter account at the Emily D. Baker. But the nurse said, you know, they were asking her, did you look for scalp injuries? Did you look for bumps on her head? Did, did she say that she had hit her head? And the nurse said that she's not trained to look for those kinds of injuries. I mean, if somebody's been brutally assaulted and your nursing notes are there was a little bit of blood on her lip. I feel like maybe there would have been more in the nursing notes. And the nurse said when asked that she assumed if there had been other injuries, she would have recorded them. If somebody's got a broken nose the day before or hours before, you're probably going to 
be able to tell even if you're quote unquote not trained to look for those kinds of injuries. So it was very interesting testimony that seemed to, again, this nurse showed up after Amber Heard is testifying to a horrific fight where she was um, very badly assaulted. And you've got the nurse saying she had a little bit of blood on her lip. It's The evidence is very contradictory, uh, to say the least. The final Final witness from Depp's team was Michael Spindler, a forensic accountant. We love a forensic accountant. It's fascinating stuff. And he was testifying about damages. The cross by Rottenborn, I thought, was quite good. He really went by, well, why are you using this year? Isn't isn't Depp's income trending down from other years? Why did you use 2017 as the year and not 2018? And really questioned his premises and the way he chose to do the forensic accounting. The forensic accountant told the jury that Depp had lost an estimated $40 million due to the op-ed. Um, but then, you know, Rottenborn really started pointing out, but you can't say it's this op-ed in 2018 that's December 2018 versus this other headline calling him a wife beater earlier here. Like, you can't really say you're basing it off of the numbers, but you can't really pin these numbers to this thing, can you? And he was like, well, I, you know, I looked at the numbers and his, you know, his last clean year of revenue was... 2017. And in 2018, this thing happened and this revenue was lost. So Rottenborn on Cross also pointed out that the calculation that this was based on $22 million for pirates that went into this $40 million of estimated loss was based on not a deal being signed because there was never a deal signed in ink. It was a verbal agreement that the studio and Johnny Depp understood that it would be a $22 million deal as we heard in the testimony earlier from his agent. And with that, Depp's team rested their case before lunch on day 13 of trial, May 3rd. And then my favorite thing happened. There was a motion to strike, which also in other jurisdictions, it's called a motion to dismiss. The motion to strike or motion to dismiss is generally brought at the end of a plaintiff or prosecutor's case by the other side saying, your honor, there is simply not enough evidence here for any jury following the law to find either guilt or liability against my client, and therefore you must dismiss the case. And we actually close in time saw this successful in the Black China Kim Kardashian defamation case. Kim Kardashian was dismissed out of that case or yeeted, as we like to say here on the uh, on the channel with the law nerds, was yeeted out of that case because the plaintiff, Black China, had not introduced any statements that were attributed to Kim Kardashian that could be defamatory. There were no statements. It's like, what? but what did she say, though? Oh, nothing? Okay, you're dismissed. You can go. You can't have defamed someone if you said nothing. So with that, we actually saw it be successful in like close in time to this happening. Amber Heard's team makes their motion to strike and Rottenborn is the one who argued. He seems to be lead counsel when it comes to arguing. He also went first when it came to the opening statements. I imagine he'll go first when it comes to closing statements. He seems to be the one that's arguing the law on this legal team vis-a-vis Ben Chu, who is arguing the law um, and arguing first for Johnny Depp's team. So Rottenborn gets up and argues that there is you know, Depp has not met his burden of proof. There is no clear and convincing evidence that the article is defamatory. It's clearly, therefore, not defamatory, that the statements are true on their face, and that there is no dispute that there was non-physical abuse, which is exactly what I thought they would argue. Look, she talks about domestic abuse. Abuse is a very broad term, so they don't even have to prove the physical abuse that they're saying they proved, but it's it's in evidence and it's just uncontroverted that there was mutual abuse or not. That's not what he said. He said that there was non-physical abuse and that abuse can come in many forms in this um, relationship. Therefore, the statements aren't defamatory. They then started saying that Depp himself testified that non-physical abuse can be very traumatic. And they talked about Depp's testimony with his mother. So then he started arguing about the headline in the case and the headline of the digital or the online version is different than the headline in the print version, but the online version is part of what's being sued over and her retweeting the um, op-ed with the digital version headline is another count in this lawsuit. And the headline for that says, Opinion, Amber Heard, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. This has to change. So they start arguing about it and the court interjects and is like, but excuse me, Mr. Rottenborn. Um, there's a stipulation 
that Amber Heard wouldn't be called during Depp's case in chief. And I was like, excuse me, what? So there had been an agreement that this evidence was going to come in and the questioning of Amber Heard would happen during Amber Heard's case. What we saw in the Cardi B, Tasha K defamation lawsuit is that the first witness that Cardi B, who sued YouTuber Tasha K, called, the first witness Cardi B's team called was Tasha K. Did you say this on your YouTube channel? Did you say that on your YouTube channel? They called her and direct examined her as their first witness. And Depp's team could have done that as well. They could have called Amber Heard to the stand as a witness during their case, instead of letting her legal team do a direct examination of her first, they could have done that or decided to treat her as a hostile witness. It, Based on the judge saying there was a stipulation that that wasn't going to happen, it's clear that the parties agreed that Amber Heard would not be called during Depp's case. They would be able to question her about these things when she was called in her own case in chief, which was new information to me. And by that point, you could see Ben Chu like chomping literally at the bit, stepping into saying, yes, Your Honor, this isn't in evidence yet because we didn't call her. We can't argue that there's not enough in evidence with regard to the title of the article or regard to the republication of the article because we haven't been able to ask her about it yet. And the court seemed to agree. Rottenborn was saying it doesn't matter that there's not evidence that they think she's going to admit to retweeting it. I mean, it's a verified Twitter account. She retweeted it and added additional things. She didn't just retweet the link, but he's like, Ben Chu, but he's like, and then she's like, but Ben Chu argued, look, we haven't even gotten that evidence in. And the court agreed saying, no, that evidence not in is in yet, is not in yet. And Rottenborn argued, but even if that evidence was before the court, it's still not enough. Republication still doesn't count for defamation under a case that he cited and continued to try to argue, um, though seemingly a little bit more rattled, but continued to try to argue that there's not enough evidence that the op-ed title was admitted by Heard, was written by Heard. Um, and he even went as far as to say there's no dispute that she didn't write it based on the testimony at hand. Benchu again popped in to argue. And then Rottenborn's like, can I please just finish my argument? Benchu sat down and let him finish his argument as he should, but not without saying, well, I can't wait to argue this. And we're like, we know you could feel the tension building in the courtroom. And I will link in the description in the show notes, my link to the video where that like 45 minute argument is if you watch nothing else in this trial and want to know how these lawyers are going to argue in closing, that is a really good preview of the legal grounds that they're going to be arguing. So Rottenborn finishes up saying, again, there's no dispute that she didn't write the headline and we've got testimony from the ACLU about how the op-ed got written, but it doesn't matter if she adopts the headline or um, if she republishes the headline that then she's, is she restating it? So the headline is their strongest defamatory statement at this point, I think. Um, The argument regarding Uh, sexual violence, the fact that that is clearly defamation per se, they don't have to prove damages to it. And the jury has to decide um, whether that happened or not based on her testimony that we will get into. But it's different than listening to the audio of them screaming at each other and going, well, is this level of name calling? Is this level of fighting? Is it abusive or isn't it? Because the jury doesn't have a definition of abuse in a criminal sense because this is defamatory. What is meant by domestic abuse and how broad or narrow is that term? And the experts all agree that psychological abuse, um, you know, these kinds of verbal arguments, all of this can be characterized as abusive. And so there's a lot more room, I think, for the jury to find that both of these parties were abusive to the other. But if that's true, then her statement that she um, was a victim of domestic abuse is not false on its face. The jury can say, well, that's true. That's not defamatory. But then you get this much stronger headline and it is a different story. That's why there are three counts of defamation in this case. So then Ben Chu gets up to argue and he comes in absolutely hot arguing this motion to strike. He talks about why the court should deny it. Newsflash, they did. But then he goes the extra mile to point at Amber Heard in court and say they have not just proven defamation with actual malice, but they've actually proven that Miss Heard is the actual abuser. And he keeps looking at her as he's arguing with her, which was an interesting tactic, knowing that she was going to be testifying later that day. He then argues the legal standard and the cases. He argues defamation by implication, which we know they're going to argue to the jury because. Johnny Depp is not named. He said that the most disgusting testimony 
was the ACLU saying that when they were pitching the op-ed, that there were emails back and forth to the Washington Post saying, can we interest you in an op-ed by Amber Heard, who, as you may recall, was beaten up in her brief marriage to Johnny Depp. He argued that everyone understood the op-ed was about Johnny Depp and that the article sought maximum impact with the timing of the release. He then went on to shade the um, ACLU and saying, you know, it's one thing for them to lend their once um, respected name to this op-ed to help write it. It's one thing for her to stiff the ACLU, but she also failed to follow through on a promise to donate to the Children's Hospital, indicating and arguing that Amber Heard had lied about things, and that was very much in the record already. He then said that without the references to Johnny Depp, that the op-ed would have ended up at the back page of Teenage Vogue because no one was interested in this publication or this op-ed without it being tied to Johnny Depp. And no one, his exact quote was, no one was interested in what she had to say unless she was defaming Mr. Depp. He then called Heard a recidivist perpetrator of domestic abuse against Depp and others, again, leading me to believe that they in cross-examination or in rebuttal are going to get into Heard's prior arrest for domestic violence against a previous partner. They then talked about all the different lies that had been exposed. And in his argument against the motion to strike, Ben Chu sure as shit said she even lied about the final insult left on the marital bed. Yep. Yep. The grumpy came back up. The grumpy came back up in argument. I was like, no, he didn't. And he said that then she later admitted it to a witness that had spoken in week three and said that it was a terrible prank gone awry. And I was like, oh, damn, he came in hot. And it was clear that he came in hot. And when Rottenborg got up for his rebuttal saying, no, we've met the standard, it should be dismissed or the counts should be stricken. He said, it's clear that Mr. Chu wrote that speech for an audience outside the courtroom and then reiterated the points he was arguing as a matter of law, not all of which are bad points when he argues them in closing. And I think legally, they have some very strong arguments about the defamation, especially when it comes to the abuse allegations. It's why they're going to fight so hard about the title of the article. The judge very quickly denied two of the rulings and took the ruling under submission as to the retweet because that's not an evidence before the court yet. I'm sure by the end of the case, the judge will deny that as well. The heard case begins in the afternoon with Dr. Don Hughes, who is a clinical and forensic psychologist who specializes and focuses in interpersonal violence. She had a very impressive resume, has done quite a lot of things, is presidents of societies and boards dealing with her specialty, has testified over 50 times as an expert. And I was very interested to see where this was going. And it quickly, for me, went right off the, just flying right off the rails. It, this testimony for me ended up being one of the most staggering testimonies I've ever seen by an expert witness in court. And it started off with, you know, Elaine Bredhoff, who, who I over here call Umbridge based on her tone and opening arguments. She called this doctor, Dr. Hughes, Dr. Curry, not once, but twice. Dr. Curry, who you will remember is the expert for Johnny Depp's team. She actually facepalmed herself once. She called her Dr. Curry and Dr. Hughes went, Dr. Hughes, and she actually facepalmed herself in court. Um, but we'll get to Elaine calling people by the wrong name in a few minutes. She found in her, well, in her findings of interviewing Amber Heard and interviewing Amber Heard's mother, interviewing Amber Heard's treating, um, other treating nurses and doctors and therapists, that Amber Heard's symptoms were consistent with interpersonal violence in her relationship with Johnny Depp and that she has clear traumatic effects from the relationship. She also diagnosed Heard with PTSD. Again, this is why Dr. Curry, Depp's expert, is a PTSD expert. They are very much um, refuting or, or trying to refute this PTSD diagnosis. She didn't agree with Dr. Curry's findings. She said that Depp was obsessively jealous. She had not spoken to or evaluated Depp. I thought some of her testimony went beyond the bounds of what an expert can properly testify on, seeing that she didn't evaluate Depp in any way. She also seemed to downplay Heard's use of force against Depp and called it non-proportional force or minor acts of violence. I found that to be a little bit surprising. I was also surprised on cross-examination. They were not allowed to ask her about 
Heard's prior arrest for domestic violence. I don't know how that court ruling happened. They went up to sidebar about it and it seemed to be overruled. I think that this expert opened the door for it. Um, I know other legal analysts believed that as well. So I was very surprised by that ruling. Um, and one of the things that was very off-putting about Dr. Hughes is that every time she referred to a victim, she referred to a victim as she. Every time she referred to a perpetrator, she referred to a perpetrator as he. And at no point in her testimony, even on cross, did she say that she believed that a male could be a victim of a female perpetrator in instances of interpersonal violence, which we know is just not the case. Um, it almost felt like she was going out of her way to not, I mean, she's not neutral, neutral. She's here for Amber Heard's side, but to not even admit that there are circumstances where men are victims of violence, where women are the perpetrators. It was uh, very off-putting, but not as off-putting as her being snarky to the judge over the fact that she was using, as she called it, a cheat sheet. If you want to see my take on that, I put that on Instagram and TikTok in my, I had a little short about it. I found it very off-putting that she was reading from a list which experts are not allowed to do. And she kept reading from her notes to the point where the court called both attorneys up to sidebar and told them about it. And then Umbridge had to go and admonish the witness about how you properly refresh your recollection. Apparently this woman has a book on how to be an expert, an expert witness and was reading from a list, which you can't do. There are ways to refresh your recollection, but when questioned about it, she said, so you want me to and literally held up her notes. You want me to just look down at this and then look up and then my recollection is refreshed. I was like, what did you just say? You want me to look down and then look up and then my recollection is refreshed? The, the snippiness, she kept trying to talk directly to the judge and the judge actually at one point said, this has been a very patient judge, said she can't keep addressing me. The witness kept talking to the judge. It was like she was saying, I want to talk to the manager of the trial. It was so off-putting that her good testimony was completely lost for me because I was so off-put with the circus that was happening. But she did talk about cycle of violence. She did talk about uh, victims of domestic violence. She talked about different types of coercive force where, you know, it's not just violence, but spying behaviors and other types of behaviors. All of that came into it, but a lot of that was lost for me based on the way she used language and based on the way she addressed the court and the way she kept reading her notes. I thought cross-examination could have been stronger, but when they went through her note-taking and the way she used some of the assessment measures, I think what Depp's team is doing is building up to Dr. Curry talking in rebuttal, and they didn't really hammer her in cross the way I think at points they probably could have. They did ask about bias and bias in language, and she said it's important to keep gender bias in mind, but then she walked right back into that language um, that she had been using before. And that brings us to days 14 and 15, May 4th and 5th, which Dawn Hughes finished her testimony in the morning. And then Amber Heard took the stand after lunch on Wednesday, May 4th, and then testified all day on May 5th. If you have not watched any of this testimony, I'm not going to get into detail, like painful detail of this testimony. But when she began her testimony, same with Johnny Depp, she talked about her upbringing, her childhood, but moved past it very, very quickly, much more so than Depp did into coming to Hollywood and being a struggling actress. I found her early testimony to be endearing. I wanted to listen to what she had to say, but as she got into her relationship with Depp, I found the stories to continue to grow in um, very verbose language things that were very consistent with what Dr. Curry had said. And I'm sitting there trying to listen to her and trying to, to parse the stories that we've heard with her perception of the stories. But as her testimony went on, particularly on Thursday, things got more and more exaggerated to the point where the contradictions were so glaring to me, it was hard to listen to her testimony at times. She was talking about the Australia incident and having her feet really badly sliced up, but there is no evidence that supports that. No, no photos of anything other than, well, there's photos of damage to the, uh, to the home in Australia, but all of the blood in Australia is droplets that look like they were dropped from Depp's finger as he's moving around various places. Nothing consistent with feet being sliced up and slipping and sliding on a, um, on a slippery floor with glass and, and, 
liquid on it. There were descriptions where she talked about being on her back, but then being on her front that were very inconsistent. She talked about her head being bashed against a hard surface backwards um, multiple times, but there are no doctor's reports and no notes. And then we have the testimony from Ben King in week three, talking about taking her to the airport the next day, walking through the airport, seeing no injuries on her at all. And her testimony that she wanted to stay in Australia, not that she was trying to leave. So the testimony from Australia and other incidents continued to grow to the point where when we got to the pictures that she had admitted into evidence with her team of what she says purports to be a headbutted face, a broken nose, a split lip, you're looking at the pictures going, wait, I've listened to what you've described. And what you've described is horrific, horrific abuse, like pummeling abuse, um, repeated head injuries, heads being bashed against things, being dragged room to room by her hair, these very graphic, very violent retellings. And then the pictures, you're looking at them going, is there something there? Because I'm not sure. It's hard to tell. There's no swelling. And at one point, her attorney was circling things on a photo saying, do you see bruising there? And I lost my mind. I'm like, that A is leading. But if your client doesn't know where there's bruising on their face after saying they were repeatedly pummeled to the point that they were beaten so badly, the bed that they were on broke. Shouldn't they be able to point out the bruising in their own photo? There was quite a lot of leading in this testimony. And there, there were times where uh, Umbridge was telling heard how to testify. It was very strange to watch. And there were times where Depp's team was surgical with their objections, but there were times when they stopped objecting, which sometimes as a lawyer is the hardest thing to do when you can't object, but you don't. And I think some of that was to let the jury see that her attorney saying, okay, you can testify, but you have to, you can't talk about this and you can't talk about that. And you could see her getting frustrated on the stand. Um, the media has definitely taken her testimony in different ways. Social media has taken her testimony in different ways than the media. What I will say and caution, if you engage in conversation about her testimony or watch it yourself, not all victims of crime cry when they testify. And there, I saw a lot of people saying she's doing all this with no tears. It's not the no tears that were a problem for me. The way she was describing things and the way she was saying she got slapped in the face three times and felt nothing. Some of those descriptions were difficult for me because they just didn't match with my own experience. Talking to victims of crime, talking to um, people who had been harmed physically. It just, the way that she described things in all of these different horrific things that she described did not, um, did not, I, I, I want to say did not seem, but it's not that. It just wasn't consistent. And even sitting here recording this episode, it is hard for me to talk about it being so inconsistent because coming into this case, I truly didn't want to believe that someone would lie about such horrific abuse. It's difficult to fathom. Um, but also it's difficult to watch the conversation of, well, all victims do this and why don't victims do that? That's not true either. Not everyone responds to trauma the same way. Not everyone testifies the same way, but I've never seen anyone become hysterical in testimony and then recover so quickly. I've never seen anyone become overwhelmed or seemingly overwhelmed with recounting an event and then pausing and looking at the jury um, and then continue telling I've seen people describing things that have happened to them, try to race through the testimony with as little detail as possible because it's awful to say out loud. I've seen them look down and try to shrink away from the jury because they don't want people they don't know looking at them while they're talking about things. I've seen people's, I've seen people cry without a sob because their eyes water as they're talking about it. I've seen people's voice break to the point where they cannot actually force the words out of their throat. But I've never seen anyone become overwhelmed with emotion with a strong and steady voice. I've not seen anyone have a sobbing fit without being a snotty, runny, red mess. Um, and so for me, there were a lot of things in her testimony that were inconsistent, not just with other testimony, but inconsistent with the way I've seen people testify. And that was difficult to watch. Uh, by the end of Thursday, May 5th, I was not just exhausted, but kind of flabbergasted by her testimony and how stark the contrast was between her testimony and the photos admitted into court as evidence, especially since there were so many photos of Johnny Depp 
um, sleeping in a chair or, you know, as she said, passed out here or passed out there or passed out with ice cream. There's photos of everything. There's photos of lines of cocaine on a table with her driver's license and a tampon applicator. There's photos of so much. There's hours long audio recording of them fighting. But what there isn't yet in the record, and her testimony's not done, but what there isn't are clear photos of injuries that match the abuse that she's described. What there isn't yet is medical records that match the abuse that she's described. And that's what I'm going to be looking for when she resumes the stand on May 16th. And then we're going to be looking at probably at least two days of cross-examination with Camille Vasquez, who we saw being kind of the attack dog in opening statements. She was the attorney for Johnny Depp's team that called Amber Heard a liar in opening that said, you know, or reiterated that Amber Heard's going to be giving the performance of a lifetime. And at the end of Thursday, May 5th, you saw Johnny Depp's PR team and Amber Heard's PR team release competing PR statements that were just kind of bizarre. And I addressed those on social media and there will be a quick bits video up on that channel on it. But, you know, Johnny Depp's team said, as we said, Amber Heard's giving the performance of a lifetime and Amber Heard's PR statement called Johnny Depp cowardly and pitiful and not able to look at Amber Heard in the face during her testimony and instead doodling and snickering. It was very, it was a very odd PR statement. And I don't think we're going to see the end of that kind of oddness because we've got a whole week where the court's dark. The judge is at a judicial conference. So there is no court this week. The judge made very clear that closing arguments are going to be on May 27th. And this jury is going to get this case before Memorial Day. I think the court will probably be dark on May 30th and the jury will start deliberating that next week. But I will be streaming the, you know, May 16th through the 19th and then the following week through closing arguments on the 27th. And I hope that you will join me and the rest of the law nerds for it. And I will continue to be doing the roundups here on the channel for each week of trial. So if this is helpful, let me know. If you have questions, let me know because we're not done talking about this one yet. And most of all, Thank you for your support. Thank you for being a law nerd and thank you for being here. And with that, raise a glass. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. May your gas not be $7 a gallon. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will see you in the next one. <laughs>